Kia ora, I'm Emile Donovan, and today on The Detail... Well, the past 24 hours have seen a flurry of anger, denials and promises to investigate after the Pandora Papers made global headlines where almost 12 million documents were leaked, revealing hidden wealth, tax avoidance and in some cases money laundering by some of the world's rich and powerful. For months now, hundreds of journalists around the world have been analysing a dump of millions of leaked documents revealing exactly how the rich, the famous and the criminally compromised hide their wealth around the world and minimise their tax obligations. As a financial journalist, it's kind of like um, winning the golden tickets to Wonka's Chocolate Factory. So what are the Pandora Papers? What do they show? How much of what's going on here is flat-out illegal? And how much is just unethical? What role does New Zealand play in allowing mega-rich criminals to hide and access their ill-gotten gains? And given the trillions of dollars in play here, given the people involved here... The offshore dealings of presidents, prime ministers and royalty are revealed in almost 12 million files obtained by the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists. Is there any realistic hope that anything could actually change? Or has this murky landscape of lawyers and illicit money and offshore shell companies and financial advisors and bankers grown into such a vast interlinked web that it's now too big to fail? It can be done. It just requires sort of a critical mass of motivation, which I'm hoping that the um, Pandora Papers can help nudge us towards. Matt Nippet is an investigative reporter with the New Zealand Herald. The Herald and TVNZ are the only media outlets in New Zealand who participated in the analysis of the Pandora Papers. I began by asking him to explain what this story is actually about. Well, it's really, I've characterised it as a, a startling insight into the way the other half percent lives and <laughs> arranges their affairs. Um, sort of this, this offshore sector sort of exists in the, in the gaps between nations where money flows, it's difficult to track, it can be accumulated uh, beyond the reach of law enforcement authorities or or tax authorities. Um, And the level of detail we've got here about people who use these structures is quite staggering. I mean, I've been going through files that include passport scans and um, details of Latvian bank account transactions. It's both sweeping and granular, which makes sense once you realise it's probably the largest data leak in history. Why does it matter? <laughs> Why does it matter? Well, first of all, uh, the numbers involved are really big. Um, you're talking just for the New Zealand sort of entities I'm looking at. There are billions and billions and billions of dollars in there. And once you get to a certain number of zeros, I think things start mattering. Hmm. There's also two key uh, sort of issues overlying this. One is the, this is, it's the tax one and tax fairness and whether it is fair that uh, some individuals are able to structure their affairs in a way where they don't pay tax anywhere. Um, While it can seem like a victimless crime, in fact, often it's not even a crime, it can seem like a victimless issue. Governments do rely on taxation revenue to provide public services. I mean, when you've got um, huge, you know, rivers of money flowing out of impoverished Eastern European countries um, to to various havens, um, that money is not available to, you know, fund their hospitals and schools. And secondly, you've got this um, enabling of criminal activity, which is where, you know, if authorities don't know money exists, it can't be recovered. 
And so we've got many cases in this leak of people who engaged in financial crime uh, who then, you know, use some of these structures to, to hide or protect those proceeds. It's been done a number of times by this particular group, the International Consortium of Journalists. They're based in Washington, D.C. Jared Riles, the Australian journalist behind it. And what he basically does is he sets himself up as a as the nice WikiLeaks, if you like, where people can send him information and then he gets a consortium of journalists from around the world to pick it apart and tear it apart and, and very cleverly goes to major news outlets in each country and gets them to sign up. Uh, and in this country, it's One News and the New Zealand Herald are a part of it. Let's talk a bit about the actual project itself. This has involved hundreds of journalists all around the world. How did you get involved with it? When did you find out about this? Like, were, you, were you approached by somebody? Were you sort of sniffing around and you got an inkling that something was happening? What was the kind of process there? My involvement with ICIJ goes back a wee while. Uh, I'd spent a big chunk of my career in business journalism looking at sort of transnational tax and crime issues. Um, I'd always found it enormously difficult when trying to follow money across borders because suddenly, um, you know, I First of all, it's just the uh, simple understanding issue that I've got a fairly good grasp of New Zealand companies' office structures and where I can get access to things. You know, but once it goes to another jurisdiction, there might be language issues, there might be legal issues, things just aren't as open. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was always frustrating to find out when you have a, sort of an overseas registered shell company stealing money from Kiwi pensioners. Um, after the Panama Papers leak, I'd been... Um, uh, badgering the ICIJ to um, let me get involved the next time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and eventually they did let me in and made me the second member from New Zealand behind um, Wellington journalist Nikki Hager in 2019. Mm-hmm. As part of that, I got a, uh, a call uh, on an encrypted app uh, earlier this year, I think it was uh, January, saying there was something in the works and would I like to be involved. I signed on, was given access to the raw leak, and it was pretty amazing seeing it develop over the uh, past, goodness me, it's been nine months. It's been quite extraordinary. I mean, just two weeks ago, I was sort of at this um, this communications platform we're using, and there was a, a thread entitled Questions for Putin, um, <laughs> which, <laughs> which is not something uh, I'd, I'd expected to be even tangentially involved in, uh, you know, as a, as a journalist based in Auckland. Yeah. When you say you've been working on it for the best part of nine months, what <laughs> what does that mean? Like, what do you do in your sort of day-to-day life? Because, I mean, presumably you can't really talk about this as well, right? So do, do you have to hide it from your family, from from the people around you? No, no. Well, <laughs> well, I guess um, I'm, I'm in the fortunate position that my wife generally doesn't read my stories and keeps me grounded. <laughs> so um, that was quite safe. Uh, I was able to loop in a couple of people from the Herald and on this, and they sort of got um, uh, read in. So there was a very small team of us who were aware of what was going on. But, you know, while, while we were signed in nine months ago, I've had other things to do in the time since. Mm. Realistically, it's only been the past month of working on this full time. Mm. And then I guess I've, you know, carved out a week or so here and there. And that was mainly early on. It was a, sort of a scoping exercise to figure out where the trails led to New Zealand or from New Zealand and mm. what's worth a, a closer look. Well, yeah, because I... This leak is enormous, and it's of largely documents, right? There are millions and millions and millions of documents that are that that are in this kind of leak. Like, what what does the process of working on a story like this actually encompass? How are you analysing the data? What are you doing in your like day to day? Well, um, that's where <laughs> I brought in Keith Ng, our data journalist, mm. 
who's very good with structured data, um, and he looked at what was got here. So there's 14 trust providers caught up in this leak. Um, the one we were particularly interested in is an outfit called Asia City. That's Asia City, A-S-I-A-C-I-T-I. Which ran an office in Auckland since 1996, and yep. part of their work was establishing New Zealand trusts and companies. So uh, Keith was able to, to go through and figure out how that data was structured, We'd start looking in interesting places like looking at where suspicious transaction reports um, had been filed to New Zealand authorities, uh, what their compliance department was concerned about, because if if even the trust providers had doubts about their clients, um, they're probably worth taking a second look. Uh, then we were able to identify a number of entities which raised concerns where we'd just basically pull entire um directories of data, which included, you know, trustee re- resolutions and forms and bank details, and would take sort of a deep dive into that. It was, it was impossible to read through everything. I yeah. think it would, uh, it's, there's so much to get lost in and so many rabbit holes to go down. As an example of one of those rabbit holes relevant to New Zealand, let's look at Vladimir Plahotniuk. Plahotniuk is from Moldova, formerly a part of the Soviet Union. By the late 2000s, he was one of the wealthiest people in Moldova, which is a pretty impoverished country. In 2010, he decided to enter politics and was elected first deputy speaker of the Moldovan parliament. Mr. Blahutnik owned, was understood to own, you know, heaps of businesses in Moldova, but his name never appeared on Moldovan company registries. Now, he was quite um, involved politically, but he decided to move from the back rooms and actually enter parliament himself in 2010. Mm. Shortly after this, um, we could see he approached Asia City, who set him up a New Zealand trust called the Oat of Trust. Um, and we've got access to the financial statements there. And over the next three or four years, um, an enormous sum of money was poured into this trust. I think um, the peak of it, we had 130-odd US million in assets recorded. Mm. And pretty much it was all paid out in cash to a woman in Switzerland who was listed as his ex-wife. Now, the question that's raised at this time, were financial service providers were obliged to be aware of the possibility of um, their clients being risky. Mm. And so they have a, a classification of people as politically exposed persons. And that's basically anyone that's an elected politician or is a public official with some power. You know, there's, there's more risk of them being involved in bribery and corruption than, you know, your average plumber from Devonport. Yeah. He he was flagged as a pep. We could see they did some due diligence on him to determine who he was and his background. And there was a uh, a check from a uh, firm that does these does these checks, and it raises more red flags than an Olympic opening ceremony um, back in 2011. I mean, it was quite extraordinary. I mean, he was a controversial figure in Moldova at the time, and that controversy only proceeded to substantially deepen while he was running this trust from Auckland. There was a, an enormous banking fraud in Moldova. Um, it's called the Century Theft. Involved a billion dollars, like 12% of Moldova's GDP vanished. This was about uh, 2014, I think, when we, around the same time, we were seeing these enormous transfers to Switzerland. Uh, and then his name started being li- linked to it. It appears that uh, sort of New Zealand Trust helped in um, whatever was going on there. Um, and clearly, you know, the sums involved were enormous and there are huge questions to be answered. So, is uh, so like, the issue there is that here's this guy, he has a hell of a lot of money, it may be illicit money, he is protecting that and allowed to access that because he has, 
used a company to open a trust in New Zealand, which allows him to access that money. Is that pretty much? That's pretty much it. Yeah. yeah. Well, there's that because the regulations at the time meant that the only information New Zealand authorities would have been aware about this trust is its name and the name of the New Zealand lawyer from Asia City who was the trustee. That's it. Wow. They had no idea what it was up to. Uh, we can see that as soon as disclosure requirements were uh, increased in New Zealand in 2017, suddenly the administration of that trust shifted to Cyprus. Mm. Oh, um, no. so, <laughs> so I don't think New Zealand authorities were ever aware of quite what was being done sort of under, the, under a New Zealand flag here. And this is one of the fascinating things about this leak. Much like the Panama Papers, the document dump reveals a who's who of international luminaries involved with these practices, from the King of Jordan. The papers report that King Abdullah used shell companies to obtain a number of properties in Europe, in California, in the US, and indeed here in Washington, D.C., uh, property to the president of Ukraine is uh, President Zelensky. He was very critical of his predecessor, Petro Poroshenko, an oligarch, for squirrelling lots of money in offshore accounts. It appears that Zelensky has been doing something not completely dissimilar. That um, together to Vladimir Putin, the Washington Post, which is part of the network, reported on the case of Svetlana Krivonogich, a Russian woman who the paper says was in a secret relationship with President Vladimir Putin. The Post says that just weeks after she gave birth to a baby girl in 2003, she became the owner of a Monaco apartment through an offshore company. The Kremlin did not respond to requests for comment. To the former British Prime Minister. Tony and Cherie Blair bought this townhouse in central London for £6.45 million. But rather than buy the house as you or I would, they bought the offshore company that owned it, saving more than £300,000 in stamp duty. All of which raises the question, how are they getting away with it? And the answer to that is disarmingly simple. It's all totally legal. I mean, it's, uh, if there are questions raised about here whether it... <laughs> should be legal <laughs> but um certainly all these providers were operating within well most of them were operating within the laws of the time it was intended that new zealand foreign trusts ran the way they did i mean it was written into law i don't think um quite enough thought was given into what it would actually mean 20 or 30 years down the line when there were you know more than ten thousand of these holding i don't know how many how many billion that no one in the world knew about but um it's a question of uh, this leak allows us to see how the system was working, uh, what it actually meant, what the world actually looks like beyond the um, the sort of website front pages. You mentioned New Zealand there. So like, what is New Zealand's involvement in this? Are, are we a big player in this overall broader story or is it more that this is a global issue of global rules around tax and you know shell companies and so on and so forth and we're involved in that by virtue of being a part of the globe well yeah, i mean we had a close look to try to find new zealand clients of these firms uh, we found a pile most of them are quite legitimate sort of as expats working offshore with it, with international businesses um you know we didn't find any suspicious transaction reports involving them i think we did find one um a couple of peps involved, but digging further, that was quite benign. The real, I don't want to overplay New Zealand's involvement in this sort of global superstructure, but we are a significant one. Uh, New Zealand structures, particularly, um, certainly up until 2016, were highly prized for being both tax-free and pretty much entirely secret. 
the way they work their magic is if if the client's offshore and the money's offshore, then um, they can be used as a incredibly secure lockbox, um, and without the the taint of being officially a haven. I mean, I've seen sort of uh, presentation notes by some of these providers saying, you know, the most popular foreign trusts in the world are from uh, the British Virgin Islands, the Caymans, and New Zealand. And of course, New Zealand <laughs> sits rather uncomfortably with those. Um, <laughs> Financial Wild West microstates, um, but our reputation as being sort of uncorrupt, uh, stable politically, um, was seen as a real boon because it wouldn't attract. Um, I think the way one trust provider turned it is, New Zealand trusts were uh, quote low profile and unlikely to attract adverse attention. Mm. Um, you know, when people see m- money coming in from the Caymans, eyebrows raised. But mm. money coming in from New Zealand for a long time was considered. You know, we were on various. Um, international banking whitelists generally no questions were asked this is so interesting because like i i always wonder this when i'm watching movies with villains whose aim is to steal humongous sums of money and we hold the world ransom for one million dollars because i'm always like well look if you get away with this what are you going to tell the tax man you know, you're just going to roll up with $2 billion. You're going to start buying Ferraris and stuff like that. People are going to start asking questions. This is the answer, right? This is what would happen if you were a, if you're a criminal and you, and you, and you have a large amount of money, these are the systems that you would go to, to actually use that money. Yeah. I mean, it's quite similar because I've done a lot of work on multinational companies and how, you know, if you are operating globally, you can play this game where you pick the jurisdiction that is the most tax efficient or the most secret, depending on your priorities. And you can basically choose to base yourself there. Mm. Um, what the, the Pandora paper shows is that for the extremely well healed, they can pretty much play the same game. You know, so you can base your trust in New Zealand or Cyprus and your banks in Latvia <laughs> or wherever you want, mm. whichever suits. Um, and you can keep things secret. Um, and you can pay very little or no tax if you so choose. Um, I'm I'm reminded of, uh, I think it's Kerry Packer talking to an Australian government commission, and he says something like, I am not evading tax in any way, shape or form. Now, of course I am minimising my tax, and if anybody in this country doesn't minimise their tax, they want their heads rent. Tax avoidance in and of itself is not necessarily illegal, Right. No one wants to pay more tax than they need to. I think it's it's, it's absolutely sort of rational economic man behaviour to minimise your tax bill. But when you structure your affairs, you're not paying tax anywhere. Mm. I, you know, that does raise huge questions, and it becomes a systemic and societal issue if it's done at scale. I mean, as I mentioned before, so tax revenues are literally the other half of government services. <laughs> without without tax. Uh, you don't have government services. Mm. Um, and if you've got a certain slice of society who just elects to opt out, while also enjoying the fruits of um, services provided by other people's tax, you know, it's, it really sticks in the throat. And I think it, it raises a broader issue of fairness, really. Mm. I mean, is it fair that the world operates in this way? It seems so big and sophisticated, this thing, like the web is so so sprawling that when it comes to actually doing something meaningful to address it, where would you even begin? Well, it's that old adage of, you know, um, think global, act local. I mean, you can, we can see, like, almost in real time how the regulating this offshore space is very much like a game of whack-a-mole. You know, as soon as New Zealand put in place some modest disclosure requirements, you know, 
four-fifths of New Zealand foreign trusts suddenly uprooted. And they didn't vanish. They just moved to other jurisdictions like Wyoming or the Caymans. Mm. But, you know, sure, it's a game of whack-a-mole, but if New Zealand isn't whacking its mole, it can hardly complain that other countries when other countries don't whack theirs. I mean, we need to we need to clean our own house and encourage others to do the same. I mean, it's you know, it's a bit like climate change, to be honest. We need collective action, but that collective action involves individually sorting our own stuff out. Our house is is pretty clean though, isn't it? You know, after the reforms in 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 2017, we we sort of we're more coated in a thin layer of dust, aren't we, than than having to get out the elbow crease. <laughs> Well, I mean, we sort of resolved most of the issues around disclosure for tax purposes. We uh, resolved most of the issues around um, sort of know your client stuff with money laundering stuff. But there's one big unresolved issue, and that's around the ability to structure New Zealand foreign trust. If your clients are offshore and the assets are offshore, you can arrange their affairs in such a way that you're not liable to pay tax anywhere. That's because of a quirk in in where New Zealand decides we tax trusts, we tax the the settler. Other countries tax the trustee. So you, you can create this. And the point is, we've known about this for quite a while. And in 2017, the government said, look, we, th- we think this is um, a bit of an issue. You know, we're cracking down on multinational companies for abusing jurisdictions in the same way. So if foreign trusts have done this, we will tax them in New Zealand. If they're not paying tax anywhere else, they're liable for tax in New Zealand. That has gone nowhere. It has been now we've gone through two changes of government and none of them <laughs> have decided this is a priority, despite Inland Revenue, you know, arguing quite furiously that, you know, this needs to happen. Where does that inertia come from? Well, it's partly, and this is why IRD didn't enforce uh, the very thin rules we had earlier, that this is offshore money for offshore clients. New Zealand has no claim on that as taxation. Mm. And IRD, effectively, their enforcement arm is a recovery agency. If they can see that, you know, we can look into this, we can find out what's going on. Even if they find malfeasance, there's no returns to New Zealand. Mm. So IOD having to spend time on policy to regulate our offshore sector isn't likely to increase our tax revenue. It may well increase the tax revenue in other countries that desperately need it. But there's no sort of direct, um, sort of selfish return. And I think we need to stop thinking in such narrow terms because this is a, a much wider problem than just New Zealand. That's it for today. I'm Emil Donovan. The Detail is public interest journalism funded through New Zealand On Air and produced by Newsroom for RNZ. You can get us downloaded free on your mobile device every weekday from any podcast platform. And if you're using Apple, please leave us a rating so others can find us too. Today's episode was engineered by Adrian Holley and produced by Alexia Russell. And thanks to the New Zealand Herald's Matt Nippet. Matewa. Matewa.